Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to jump into something that uh, was a bit triggered from last week, which is the idea of um, the idea of the church and who exactly we are. I think I think one of the things that uh, is required for a church, the way I understand it, or the church, the way I believe that the Bible teaches us is to understand what, um, what position we hold, what, what are our identities inside of the church. And so in some sense, we're casting, it's a casting of vision to say, this is who you are, and this is who God is, and this is how that relationship works together. So I, I do hope that this is, um, this is helpful for you. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks his disciples an important question. He says, who do you say that I am? And you've heard me talk on this many times. But Jesus uh, asked this question to which Peter answers in uh, Matthew 16, 6 through, 16 through 18. The scriptures are not going to be on the board today. I just want you to hear what I'm saying today. So uh, Peter answers Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, obviously Jesus had come to fulfill the law and the promises that were given to the people of Israel. And Jesus calls anybody and everybody who will put their faith in him, put their trust in him, to follow after him. And they become, you become, part of this grand assembly. Uh, This is the word that is used uh, for the church in the New Testament, right? And so we are, there is an assembly in, in the Old Testament of the Israelites, and there is an assembly in the New Testament, which is those gathered under the headship of Jesus. And Peter's response is actually what becomes foundational to uh, the confession of his disciples and obviously the confession of the church today. The rock upon which the church is built is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The rock upon which the church is built is not Peter, right? He's not that cool, okay? And so, so it is this confession of faith that Jesus is in fact who Peter declares him to be, Christ, Messiah, Son of the living God, and that Peter didn't himself declare this truth in his own reasoning or his own understanding. Uh, Jesus indicates the idea that, um, that this has been revealed to him by his Father, by our Heavenly Father. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it's not as ethereal and weird as you might think. Uh, remember, Peter has been walking with Jesus. He's been on this journey with uh, our Savior. And so Jesus has been teaching him and proving to him all the things that he is claiming about himself. Jesus is healing the sick. Jesus is raising the dead. Jesus is casting out demons. And so for for the Heavenly Father, for our Heavenly Father to have revealed this to Peter doesn't mean that Peter went into a trance and all of a sudden something popped out. Okay? Instead, it's this idea that God is the one who is showing all of these things. However, even though God reveals something, it doesn't mean people can't miss it. And obviously, all the people around Jesus, uh, all the people around his disciples seem to have missed it. They saw him just as a prophet. 
just as uh, some sort of minister, some sort of healer, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of messenger, right? But they didn't see him quite as he should be seen, which is the promised Christ. So we have to understand as Jesus is building his church and he has been faithful to build his church, we need to look at who we are. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at five metaphors this morning of the church, metaphors for the church and who we are. So obviously that's the title of the message today and that's all you're going to see for the rest of the time unless you open your Bibles. So so metaphors for the church, but before we jump into the metaphors for the church, I think it's really important to brush up on what exactly a metaphor is Uh, and that in conjunction, not in contrast because there is no contrast I don't believe here, uh, that in conjunction with an analogy, right? A metaphor is simply uh, a type of an analogy, right? An analogy proper or kind of plainly stated is identifying two things as similar. Where a metaphor claims a comparison uh, where there might not be one, okay? And so uh, what happens in that case is that it's left to the listener or to the hearer to uh, create meaning out of the comparison. The New Testament contains several of these images uh, in relationship to believers and to God. And so I hope you'll see that as we walk through this, we're not only looking at who we are in this, but we will always be seeing who God is in response to that, right? So the first metaphor is this, the body of Christ. Uh, The body of Christ is a metaphor that draws an analogy between the people of God and the human body, but on a larger scale, it draws a comparison between, uh, between humans or the church and the body of Christ. Not just a human body, but his body. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a digital Bible person, you can probably get there pretty quickly. Uh, If you did Bible drills as a student, as a kid, you probably can get there fast too, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he, Jesus, put all things in subjection, or God, put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice this, that that we are, in fact, plainly stated in Scripture, we are Christ's body. That is not a body for Christ, per se, but the body actually of him, right? We are his hands and feet. That's why we sing songs that refer to that. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, it says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who's the we in this verse? It's the church, because Paul is writing to the church, who are many, we who are many, are one body, and this is where the deviation occurs, it's really interesting, it says one body in Christ. And this idea of in something uh, has much more to do with, um, much more to do with uh, our placement or who is our head over top of us, right? And so we are one body in Christ and individually members of it. Now, this is important for us all to hear, that we are a collective, that we are a community of believers, we are indivisible in that reality. The church is not you, the church is we, right? 
The church is not you, the church is we. And at the same time, the scripture is clear that there are individual parts. But I don't make a whole lot out of this individual part of my body. I'm grateful that I have all my fingers. That's different from Mark Williams, right? But I'm, I'm grateful to have all my fingers, but I don't sit there and think it's the greatest thing, okay? I realize that I need everything, and so that's a distinction that we need to remember in this, uh, in this body. We are individually members of one another, and that is of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, for even as the body is one, And yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, though though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So you see the comparison, you see what's happening here, right? For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are one, right? One body, and that is Christ. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, uh, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I'm going to get back to this in another metaphor in just a second, where we talk about the importance of the makeup or the construction of God's church, uh, especially as we see it in the Bible. It is a fascinating thing that is often overlooked. So obviously we, we first celebrate the position and the ministry of Jesus inside of us being his body. Who is Jesus if we are his body? He is the head, right? He is the head of this body. He provides our identity. He provides, uh, quite honestly, he provides our coordination and our direction. How many of you are uncoordinated? Don't worry. Jesus has you, okay? So, so he is our coordination. He is our direction. He is the one that's balancing all this out, right? And under him, we are united. Each person is discovering his or her vital place as a part, uh, as a member of this body. We discover spiritual gifts inside of this body. Um, and that those gifts are for serving God and for serving people, right? So we love God and love people. Uh, and whether... Um, whether these are freshly imparted gifts or capabilities or strengths or whatever you might want to call your gift, um, or they are an anointing of strengths that are already in place, this is what we mean when we talk about gifts that God has given to his church, or this is what we mean when we talk about uh, spiritual gifts. And so the exercise of those gifts and or godly virtues, it builds each other up. So, so right away, we have to see the vision of the church is that we are a body. And as Paul belabors the point in a couple of places, um, we can't live without each other. But in America, in the, the modern church movement, we do live without each other. We live without each other all the time, and we actually act as though that's the way it's supposed to be. We have phrases that kind of sum this up. We say, this is between, my relationship with God is between me and God. No, it's not, right? He does love you as an individual part of his body, right? So, so this idea that it's, it's just between you and God, this idea that you don't need anybody else is just a construct of our current generation. And we've got to be extremely careful with it. There are many people, I was talking to Jay Sims just yesterday as we were working on Ethan's house, uh, and Ethan wasn't there to help us because he's that kind of guy. But anyway, no, I'm, just, I'm teasing Ethan. But uh, we were there working on Ethan's house, and Jace was talking about how in their past, 
in the home church movement and the world that they came from, they had uh, kind of inadvertently propagated this idea that, and the idea is summed up in a phrase, I am the church, I am the church. That's just nonsense, guys. It's nonsense. You are not the church. The church is not, you are not a whole body, are you? I mean, I know you are physically a whole body, but if Christ is your head, are you every part of his body? Absolutely not. Another thing that I want to address while we talk about the church in this respect is another misnomer of our culture. Church is not wherever you go. Church is not you at work in the break room with another person praying. That's you at work in the break room with somebody praying, right? The church is comprised of his members abroad. We are scattered many times, but the word means assembly, right? And so when we come together, and we come together with a couple of acknowledgments, Christ is head, we want his will to be done, we plan to worship and honor him, we exercise certain things that are sacred to us, that is what the church is. You see, the reason why the modern church wants you to believe that you're the church and the church is wherever you go individually is so that you don't have to deal with people. But you always have to deal with people. And one of those peoples is me. That's a fun people, right? And so we're supposed to understand this. So please wrap your minds around this. There was never a point in which Paul said, hey guys, go into your community and be the church. Never once. Please don't fall for the nonsense of this culture. So that's the first metaphor that we are the body. But the, the image of Christ inside of this, which is the most important image, I think, is that he is the head. Right? In every metaphor we talk about, Christ holds a role. And his role is indispensable. You must not do without it. So we can't operate as a body without a head. We can't operate as a body without Christ. This is also why the church stands on a foundational belief that there is one way to the Father, and that is Jesus. There's only one way to live. That's by being attached to our head, and that head happens to be Jesus. Amen? Okay. Number two is the flock. The flock. How many of you know you're a sheep? Raise your hand, real loud and proud, right? Raise your sheep, raise your sheep, raise your, <laughs> raise your hand if you know you're a sheep. Come on, I want everybody to participate. If you know you're a sheep, if you're not, then bad on you. Raise your, okay, cool. How many of you know sheep are dumb? <laughs> okay, anyway, so she, sheep are hard to deal with at times, right? Sheep are hard to deal with, they bite each other. That includes me, I'm a sheep as well, right? The flock metaphor for the people of God provides imagery both of Jesus and of us. Jesus is the shepherd and we are the sheep. This metaphor uh, in its big uh, kind of overarching view is actually a pastoral metaphor. And this is important because in many ways it's not as much about us as the flock of God. It's more about our shepherd. So I want to I show you this because his job is to care for us and to focus on us. Psalm 23, I read it as our call to worship. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Isn't that a beautiful passage? 
We're used to this at funerals. We're used to this in different, uh, in different contexts, but it's just an amazing thing. We often fall short of realizing that Jesus is, in fact, leading us into green pastures and making it so that we might lie down. Do you know what that means? It means it's safe. It means it's safe, it's secure, he's got us. He leads us beside quiet waters, which means we can drink without danger. Okay, you see these ideas. He leads us beside those quiet waters. He restores our soul. This is kind of this imagery of how water refreshes or, or those kinds of things. He guides me in the paths of righteousness, and this is important, for his name's sake. Why do you walk righteous before God? So he doesn't hate you. No, that's not why you walk righteous before God. Why do you walk righteous before God? So you can earn your way to heaven. No, that's not why you walk righteous before God. I walk righteous before God for his name's sake. What does that mean? My walk of righteousness is worship. My walk of righteousness is praise to my heavenly father. So for his name's sake. And then it goes on to the more infamous part of this this passage. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's fascinating because what we often zoom in on is the valley of the shadow of death, right? But look at the hope in the valley. You don't fear anything. God is with you at all times. And there's some important elements of what God being with you means. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. There's a couple ways to look at it. You can look at it as his discipline, and that's true in this. You can also look at it as his weapon to fend off enemies. That is also true. It is not true either or, okay? He is our defender, and he is our corrector, okay? So please understand that. There are going to be times in that valley of the shadow of death with stupid sheep that we drift from that really awesome brook, and we walk over here towards wolf territory. And what does he do? He cracks the whip or uses his staff and brings you back, right? So your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David is rejoicing in this moment. David has no problem admitting that he has enemies. He has no problem admitting that he's been done wrong. And yet, he looks at God and says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, you take care of me, even in the midst of hell. And then he says, you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, I wish that I could see this all the time in my life, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. You know, it's common for a shepherd to follow his sheep. You know who goodness and loving kindness is, right? That's our shepherd. It will always follow us. He will always be with us. He will always guide us. And guess what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know this is not written to me, but it is surely written for me. And as a sheep, I get to dwell in green pastures. I get to dwell in, in places of peace where there's quiet waters. That's beautiful. Now, does that mean life doesn't suck sometimes? I'm waiting for some audience participation. Barney said, yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean that or yeah, okay, yes, it is not fun all the time. But guess what? My shepherd is still with me. He's still guiding. He's still walking. 
Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, we're going to see an image of the shepherd here. So he told them a parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the one pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be joy in heaven over one sinner, sheep, sinner, who repents over, repents, than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now this is another hard thing for us to realize but in Luke chapter 15 we deal with the parables of the lost things right we have a lost coin we have a lost sheep and then we have a lost son all of those things once belonged this is not about unbelievers this is not about Jesus leaving his church so that he can go save a bunch of people this is about Jesus tracking you down and me down when we go stupid Right? How many of you are sheep? Raise your hand again. How many of you know sheep are stupid? Raise your hand again. Okay, thank you. This is really important, and my hand needs to be up. Okay? I have no problem with this, right? But the idea here is that God is going after those. So as a shepherd, it's amazing. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And when we go astray, he goes after us. It's a pretty awesome shepherd. But that is the value that you have as a sheep. That is how precious you are to him. But that's how precious we are to him. We're a flock. Nathan is not a flock. Sarah is not a flock. We together are this. And does God leave the 99 to go after one? Yes, he does. Does he love his 99? You better bet your butt. Of course he loves his 99. It's the same thing he said to the older son in the prodigal son story. He said, all I have has always been yours. Of course I love you. But my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. He cared for his family. This again is not about unbelievers. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, look at what pastors are called to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not while under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Think about what we just described as the shepherd. If you want to know what a pastor, pastor is to do, just read Psalm 23. If you want to know what a pastor does, read Luke chapter 15. And then fit those ideas into the call of pastoral ministry inside of 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, which is to do all those things, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. See, utilizing the shepherd-sheep relationship of the ancient Near East, this analogy creates the position and ministry of Jesus as the great shepherd, and we his flock, and then you have under-shepherds, pastors, and his flock. They're still a, a sheep anyway, right? They just happen to be sheep given a job. 
So it's really, really a fun twist of that metaphor. Under Jesus, each sheep is known intimately. He leaves to go after the one. Learns that obedience is vital to respectful discipleship. We follow after the shepherd or we go where he tells us or we're going to drift off. And we receive guidance along the journey. So this is what it means to be sheep. And it's what it means for him to be the shepherd. Number three, branches and uh, branches of the vine. Now, I want you to remember this call that the sheep had, which is to learn that obedience is a vital, uh, respectful uh, way to be a disciple. It's vital and it's a respectful way to be a disciple. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds harsh. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Even if you're bearing fruit, you're going to get cut. You're going to get cut for growth. And that's hard to hear sometimes. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And here is an infamous passage in the scripture. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's important to remember. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch And dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they're burned. It's pretty harsh stuff, right? But let's understand that within the context of faith and obedience found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, that was some of the supposed children of Abraham, right? And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief but you stand by your faith what is faith pistis what is faith to be understood in action or faith with feet it is fidelity it is faithfulness and that's what we are called right we are saved by grace 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 we are saved by grace through faith and we are given that grace as a gift of God, and we are responding to, to that grace through trust, and trust stays active. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So look at that. Belief or unbelief, this is the hinge right now, okay? Trust or not trusting God. And there's hope in that branch-vine relationship. Those people who were cut off, if they put their trust in God, they can be grafted back in. Isn't that an amazing idea? 
So he says, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? The metaphor here celebrates a position and ministry of Jesus as the vine, right? He's the root. He's the one that's giving us life and all of these things. He provides all of this life. He provides well-watered paths. He provides a community where we blossom. Think about this. How many of you have seen a tree that just goes straight up and there's no branches? That's kind of weird. That's because it's not what we see. What we see is a tree with many branches, you might see the Charlie Brown Christmas tree every once in a while, but, but the idea is you see, you see this tree and you see many branches. We are all part of this, and we all need each other to grow. We all need to be drawing from the water. We all need to be uh, digging for the root, right? And that, and that way we can grow. The marks of this community are intimacy. You're, you're stuck together, quite literally. Faithfulness and joy. I love that the scripture says that the trees, you know, the heavens declare, but it talks about the trees and talks about all these things, worshiping in some capacity God. I love this idea. It's an amazing picture because all of us are in joy, in fruitfulness, and in intimacy we're praising God. Extending that metaphor, the church finds itself spiritually grafted into God's historic chosen people, Israel. That's why the term assembly is the term assembly in the New Testament. So if you go to the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every time it talks about the assembly of Israel, it uses the same word that we use in our New Testaments for the word church. So now we have a branch and vines, or a a vine and branches. Number four, the bride of Christ. And the fifth one is the one that I really want us to to focus on, and I'll save that. But the the fourth one is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ metaphor for the church profoundly depicts the relationship of Christ to his church as a relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. Now let me put this all the way back to the beginning. You are not singularly Christ's bride. But if you keep acting singularly as Christ's bride... You're pretending as though all the other parts of his bride don't exist or aren't important. And how do you think that makes the groom feel? It is a nonsensical way to live life believing I am the church and the church is anywhere I go. We are the church and the church is wherever we gather together to worship God, to praise him, to honor his name, and to do things his way. Okay? This is very important. That leads us to one of those passages that often gets misquoted all the time. Where two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst. Do you know that that is not a passage saying that church only exists when two people show up, right? That, that, is, not when, or that is not the only time when God shows up. That's absurd. How many of you know God is with you at all times? Good, he better be with you or you're screwed, right? So he's with you at all times. Where two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst, in its context, is the church making judgments about discipline. Because in the Old Testament, everything was founded or established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. It is not, I'm hanging out with Mark Williams, so therefore God's with us. 
God's with me before Mark ever shows up. And he might actually leave when Mark shows up. Anyway, okay, sorry, Mark, I'm just teasing you, right? So the point that I'm getting at is that that is not a prerequisite. That's not to be construed as a way that we can derive church. Church is derived in a much more profound and larger way. So please understand that. So the bride of Christ, we're all his bride. We're all members of this, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. This is what we find in Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 33. And I want you to listen as I read this and, and note the makeup, note the makeup, the construction of this church in the first century. Listen to it. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Pause really quick because it's, I can't ever read a controversial passage without uh, taking a little bit of a, an important um, sidetrack here. Number one, notice the parallel here stops when Paul starts saying, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, and the parallel stops here, this is a very important thing, because what goes on is Christology, not what a husband's job is. As Christ also is the head of the body, he himself being the savior of the body. Men, raise your hands. Husbands, rather. Raise your hands. You don't save your wife. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what stupid things church taught you before. You are not the savior of your wife. Now, wait a minute, Nathan. Doesn't it say in, in uh, Corinthians that, that who knows that by your chaste behavior you might save your spouse? That's a, that's a believer and an other and an unbeliever being married together. And by the way, that's talking to a woman. So I guess both save both if you want to look at it that way. But the idea is that's just influence. That's preaching the gospel. That's showing them a message. This is not to be run as strict parallels. This is also where we need to take a point at metaphor and realize metaphors break down. If you take them too serious for too long, you will get into the weeds better than any, worse than anybody else in the world. This is where we get when we talk about dead in our sins and trespasses. We take that metaphor too far and we pretend as though men can't make decisions in their deadness. This is people not knowing how metaphors work and being ignorant. So we go further when we understand what that metaphor is in its right way and then we realize the truth. So look at this. Christ is also the head of the church, but he's the savior of the body, not husbands. But as the church is subject to Christ, the metaphor picks back up, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. But unlike Christ, if your husband asks you to do something sinful, it doesn't apply to the everything. And if you want to talk about that, I can prove it to you a thousand ways. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How did he love the church? He died. He gave himself up for her. So husbands, unless that's your benchmark, unless that's your, your uh, finish line, you ain't doing it enough. So that he might sanctify her, all of a sudden the comparison changed again, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Husbands, you don't wash your wives with the word. You are not the sole teacher of your wife. You are not the one who gives her the understanding because she's a woman and she just can't seem to understand things well. 
These are also stupid ideas that the church has fed into people's minds. Why? Because they take metaphors too far. And they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus alone cleansed us and washed us with the word. I'm going to twist that in just a second and show you that you play a part in it. But watch this. It's really important. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church. Who's presenting the church to himself? It's only Christ with his church, not husbands to wives. In all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Metaphor can pick back up. But that she would be whole. Metaphor continues or metaphor break continues but that she would be holy and blameless and then we go so husbands pick back up also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies here's what you need to make sure you do you love her like you love you we all know how that works or at least we know Nathan's opinion on that he who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh let that sit, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now look at this profound statement here. Because we are members of his body. Well, crap, Nathan, the metaphor is getting confusing because either I'm his body or I'm his bride. Which one is it? Yes. Okay, moving on, right? Because we don't take metaphors too far. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. How many are familiar with that? How many have heard it preached in almost every wedding you've ever gone to? It's not about weddings. It's not about people. Look at what happens. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This... Exact antecedent is the previous verse. This mystery is great, but I am not speaking with reference to you. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Because guess what? Jesus left his father and came for you and me. It's the same thing as the shepherd leaving for the sheep. That's what happens. You know why that's not talking about people? Because the very command that was given wasn't even followed. Look at Abraham's household. I mean, I know the command comes later, but look at Abraham's household. His sons aren't leaving the house. They're just building on and bringing people home. Well, well, he needs to follow the laws. No, that's not the point. This was a prophetic utterance of something beautiful. Christ coming to bring his church back in. Nevertheless, each individual among you, metaphor picks back up, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, there's a most amazing message of unity in everything that we've been learning here. The household codes go on in Ephesians to talk about children, to talk about servants, to talk about masters, to talk about fathers. What is the composition of this church? What's the composition of this church? I just told you. It's a family. Think about this. How many times do you, do, you, do you miss the idea of the church because you just look at it and say it's a corporate structure in America that meets on Sundays that does X, Y, and Z? This is a family of people, and as the pastor sits down to talk to his people, he goes, husbands, wives, children, fathers, slaves, masters. That's pretty impressive. He's talking to a family. And by the way, in this time, in this era in the world, slaves lived in the houses and they were a part of the family. 
This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what's happening. So all of a sudden he says, y'all need to act like a family. You need to act like one because you are one, right? Revelation 19, 7 through 9, we're back to this bride and groom metaphor. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Interesting. I thought we just read that Jesus washed us clean and made us ready. Huh, that's interesting. Make no mistake, Jesus is the one washing and we are the ones trusting. There will never be a point in which God does a thing and doesn't expect us to trust him, which is faith, by the way, guys. We're not, we're not talking about do a series of lists and commandments and all this stuff and finally you can be saved. It is that he washed you, he cleansed you, now trust him. Every time, it is both Christ doing the work of washing and us trusting him. So, the bride has made herself ready as the declaration. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Clothe herself? Yeah, we've got a job to do. We've got a, we've got a trust to uh, exhibit, faith with feet to show. Bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What does that say we're doing? What? Righteous acts. Yeah. We actually have a mission too as this family. We got to do stuff. Can I get an amen? <laughs> We've got to do stuff. This is not some weird pie in the sky message. This is we do stuff. This is the bride he has called. And he says, he says, she is white with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, which is you and me, which is the bride, which is the body, which is the vine or the branches flowing off the vine. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. These are true words of God, not John the Revelator making stuff up, okay? These are true words of God. Number five, the household of God. So we dump right from this idea of a, of a construct of a church that is a household into this household metaphor, this familial imagery. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we've got the body idea in there. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is God's family. Abraham's family. This is God's family. We go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Rhetorical question. It has no agreement with them. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Lastly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple. I just threw another metaphor in there for you. Temple of God. We are a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This analogy specifically emphasizes the relationship between the people of God and those who are now their relatives through Christ's work. Whether seen as a family through birth or through adoption, all of us are united in Christ. The vision that we cast, the vision that we see here, the vision that actually God casts and we just follow, is a vision that paints us in a picture metaphorically of a lot of things. And when we start to give interpretation to it and we start to understand it, it starts to show us our actions. If I am, um, if I am the body of Christ, then I want everything that I do to be fitting, to be befitting for the head that I represent. Amen? And everything I need to do, everything I do, needs to be in conjunction with you. Why? Because the foot can't get around without everything else. Amen? So number one, the body issue puts us right in the frame that says, I need you and you need me. Paul talks about the eye saying to the hand or whatever uses he gives, eye and ear and nose and all these other things, I have no need of you. This is part and parcel to the modern church's expression. I have no need of you. I don't need you to do this. You absolutely do. And you can lie to yourself all you want. But you need the people around you. This is why it is hard for a pastor to see people come and go and go in and go out and, and not give uh, much time and energy and focus to the very family that we have or to the very uh, body that we represent. Because it actually doesn't match with the metaphor. It doesn't make sense, right? Right? So the second one, again, we talked about the flock. We are a flock, plural. I'm not a flock. And together, this is a beautiful thing, we have a shepherd that's guiding us in good ways, in great places. If we will trust him together, do you know what the future looks like? Looks bright and beautiful. Looks bright and beautiful. We will go through valleys, and those valleys get the name of the shadow of death, right? There's positive stuff right there, right? But we go through those valleys, but we're led to green pastures. That's an important thing for all of us, not for Nathan, but for all of us to walk through that together. Branches and a vine. I can't do this without the vine, and you're all part of it too. And so I can't even do it without you. The whole tree leans towards the light, and that's what we do. And we need each other to push that way. We need each other to move different ways. The fourth analogy, again, or metaphor, is the bride of Christ. Jesus died to wash us clean. We need to start acting like that bride together. Amen? It's not good to do it alone, it's actually impossible, but it is not good for us to pretend we can do it alone because we're missing out on so many things. And then, of course, finally, the household of God. 
if we realize that we are his family, it changes everything. I said this last week, and it bears repeating. When, when my kids do something wrong, say, in the years to come, well, they've done a lot wrong, but nothing that would cause them to want to, to uh, get kicked out of the house. <laughs> anyway, maybe Sam. Anyway, so if my kids do something wrong, and let's even say it's something so egregious that they can't be in the house to influence their sisters. My love for my daughter can never change. Do you know that? Do you know that? Your love for your kids doesn't change. Some of you, I've talked with you one-on-one, I've heard stories of what your kids are going through or what your kids have gone through, and you've sat with me and you've either sat crying or you've sat frustrated or both, and you've said, but I just love them because it's really hard not to love them. I've talked with parents whose kids have, have expressed that they have different sexualities and that is very hard for them to hear and so they struggle with this and they say, but the church says this, but I just want to love them. You should keep loving them, but love them in truth. Love them and tell them what God says, but never stop loving them. We would always love each other. And what I said last week, again, that bears repeating, is that if you have a family and people make mistakes and people do things, you still love them. And even if they had to leave for a time, you welcome them back and you become that family again. But that's not how the American church works. It's by Avidazane, right? Get out of here, and I never want to see you again. And there's a trouble to this idea because people don't feel they can come back, or they don't, they're, they're not welcomed back, or they don't want to come back. Whatever it is, people get hurt on both sides. A family doesn't stop loving each other, right? A family fights for one another. A family uh, rallies behind one another. This is what we're called to do. But when we miss that metaphor, when we miss that idea and we buy the psychology and the nonsense of our world today, what we end up with is, eh, I can find a new family right down the street. Sure. Sure. At the cost of the people that you love. At the cost of people that love you, right? I just want to caution you. I want to caution anybody who ever listens to anything that I say that we're supposed to be a family marked by devotion and care and love for each other. Something that the world doesn't see enough of. And if they don't see it in us, you know what that communicates to them? It's hopeless. If the people espousing this way can't do it, nobody's going to do it. We need to give everything we've got. This is who you are, guys. You are a flock. You are a family. You are a body. You are the bride. You are branches coming out of this vine. You are that together and not alone. Amen.